Karen was a woman who worked in New York City as a nurse in a hospital. Her and her husband were both faithful and regular members of their church, and they had three beautiful kids. The youngest of their children was an 11-month-old boy. And Karen was a good mom and a regular dedicated mom like many of you I know are. But one day while they were having dinner together, the, the 11-month-old was in his chair eating dinner with them and he somehow leaned back in a weird way and his chair tipped and the, the young baby fell and hit the back of his head on the floor. After a lot of crying and some consoling from mom and dad, he eventually settled down and since she was a nurse and her husband also worked in the medical field, they determined they didn't need to go to the emergency room or anything like that, that the little guy would be okay. But they did have his one-year checkup coming up, so they decided we'll just tell the doctor then and, and check in and make sure everything was okay. So when they went to see their doctor, they told the doctor about what happened, about this accident with the baby falling out of his chair. And so they did some x-rays and they found that there was a small crack in the baby's skull, but it would heal like most bones do. They'll just grow back and even grow back stronger. But the next day, Karen was surprised when three people showed up to her house from Child Protective Services to take away her one-year-old son and her other two children. Somehow it got reported that there had been some child abuse occurring in their home. And for the next nine months, Karen and her husband had to work hard to, to get their kids to come back to live with them. The hardest part for Karen was that she was a nurse in a hospital and that she sometimes worked with kids, which meant because this case was going on, she couldn't do her normal, regular job and provide for her family like she normally could. She had to endure nine months of difficulties and, and shame and a, a criminal charge against her and her reputation and, and things like that. And I tell you that story, and I want to come back to it at the end of our message today as a way to remind you that sometimes suffering occurs in our lives unjustly. Sometimes we endure suffering that we didn't cause and we didn't deserve, but we have to go through it. Generally, people are not harmed for acts of kindness, but sometimes suffering comes even when we're doing the right things. And knowing that unjust suffering sometimes comes in our lives, I think it's, it's good for us to ask some questions. And I think we even have the right to ask some questions of God and of God's word. Questions like, is there a model for us to follow when it comes to suffering? How do we talk about God when we're in the middle of our suffering? How do we talk about God to the people that cause our suffering? Is there a way for us to prepare for that suffering, to get through it easier? And how do we know and what promises do we have that we will experience deliverance from that suffering? We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22 today that, that Carolyn read for us. And it's in the middle of this paragraph that continues some of Peter's thoughts about Christians, good Christians, that endure unjust suffering. He's talking to them about suffering that occurs sometimes because of the good works that they do. And we're going to go through this, 
these five verses together. They're difficult to translate. They're difficult to interpret, and they have some difficult applications for us. So let me tell you kind of a summary before we dig into it, in case I lose you a little bit or I do a poor job of explaining some of the difficult parts of these verses. Let me just tell you what these five verses really say to us as Christians. Peter essentially says in these five verses that suffering occurs in our lives just like Christ experienced suffering. So we need to expect it. We need to prepare for it. We need to proclaim Christ in it. And we need to trust that we will experience ultimate vindication from that suffering. So we're going to look at Christ's suffering, his example in verse 18. Christ sharing how he talked about that suffering in 19 and 20. Christ sustaining work in our lives in verse 21. And then in verse 22, Christ's summit, how he went and ascended into heaven. And essentially, as we come to the end of our time today, I hope you see this, that the ultimate sacrifice by the ultimate Savior leads to the ultimate salvation that we experience in our lives. So let's look at verse 18 that, that summarizes the suffering that Christ experienced on our behalf. Peter writes in chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. There are four things about Christ's suffering here in this one simple verse that, that summarizes what Christ did on our behalf. The first thing is that Christ's suffering was singular. It says Christ also died for sins once for all. That's a past tense statement. It's a single event. See, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the Jews would regularly bring sacrifice after sacrifice for Passover year after year after year and repeated those things. But in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, Christ fulfilled that. He was a one-time sacrifice that serves over and over and over again for us when we place our faith in him. Kind of like when you go to high school and you get that diploma and you use it again and again and again and again when you apply for new jobs or certain things. You did something once to get that diploma, but then it serves its purpose time and time and time again that doesn't require any effort from us. So Christ's suffering was singular. A second part of Christ's suffering is that it was sufficient. Peter says Christ died once for all. That emphasizes that Christ's work and Christ's death was enough. His sacrifice was complete. It was sufficient. There's nothing that has to be added to it to, for us to enjoy it. It doesn't need, mean that we need to add our human effort. His sacrifice, his suffering was a once-time event. It was sufficient for all people. A third part of his suffering is it was substitutionary. Peter says Christ died the just for the unjust. This describes the sinlessness of our Savior. Jesus was fully God and fully human, yet he never ever sinned. And because he never ever sinned, he could take our place and, and serve on behalf of our sin and remove our sin. And fourth, Christ's suffering, it was 
successful. We learn about the purpose there. It says, so that Christ died, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. The verb there used for bring us to God describes uh, to lead someone or to bring someone or to approach, you know, to take someone and approach them to someone else. It means to present us to God on the basis of Christ's atoning death, which has opened the way for us. What Peter's telling these believers here and what he's telling us is that we experience unrighteous suffering just like Christ did. Let me read 1 Peter 3.17 to show the context in which verse 18 comes in. Peter writes in 3.17, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. See, last week Peter taught us that suffering might come in our lives when we do good works. In the context of chapter 2 and chapter 3, specifically, Peter is telling them to submit to governmental authorities, to submit to their work bosses, for spouses to submit to each other, and people in the body to submit to each other, people in the body of Christ to submit to each other. And Peter says, when you do those four things, when you're a good Christian, you might, if it's God's will, as verse 17 says, you might suffer because of it. Stephen Lawson, who's been a pastor in Arkansas and Alabama, says, As long as we are believers in Jesus Christ, there will be unjust suffering that will accompany our lives. One of the marks of spiritual maturity, he says, is your ability to handle unjust suffering. You need to understand, my friend, it is par for the course. He likes golf. It is par for the course for your faith in Jesus Christ that while you are in this planet, while you're on this planet, there will be unjust suffering for your faith in Jesus. And the number one on the list is Jesus himself. See, if Jesus was a perfect person and if Jesus was killed a criminal's death, we as imperfect people should expect the same type of suffering just like Christ experienced. You probably know the name Martin Luther, who was one of the great reformers of the 16th century. When he saw things occurring in the, the Roman Catholic Church, he decided that he needed to take a stand because so many things were being done that weren't scripture-based and weren't biblical. And Martin Luther was a, a teacher in a college and also a pastor of a local church, so he started to take a stand against some of those things in the Catholic Church they were doing. And it was his goal to always change the church and reform the church and, and help fix the church and get the Roman Catholic Church back to his, his, its roots based in Scripture was his desire. But when he started to teach things that were based on Scripture that were contrary to the Catholic Church, the Pope and the Catholic Church started to, to persecute Luther and his followers. Specifically, there were a lot of little tracts that he had written up like little pamphlets that printers would print and they'd pass around. He had some books in print. So the Roman Catholic Church decided to start these book-burning parties where they would get people to bring all the Luther pamphlets and all the Luther books and put them in a pile and they would burn them as a way to show they were against the teachings of Martin Luther. 
Now that's sad, but it's sad also because at one point in time on July 1st, 1523, two pastors that had Luther's books in their libraries were added to that bonfire and were burned alive by the Roman Catholic Church simply because they were trying to follow God's word and, and reform the Catholic Church. In the next several decades, secular historians record that there were even book printers, men and women that owned printing businesses that also paid for their lives because they were found out that they had been printing works by Martin Luther that the Roman Catholic Church was against. Those are people that experienced suffering, right? Unrighteous suffering, even though they were doing good things. They were following God's word and they were trying to, of all things, trying to get back to God's word, yet they lost their lives at the hands of so-called Christians. But what did Christ do during that suffering? If verse 18 describes his death, what did he do during that time of his death? Where did he go for those three days that he was in the grave? Verses 19 and 20 describe Christ's sharing in his suffering. Verse 19 reads, let me read the very last part of verse 18. It says, Jesus was made alive in the spirit, verse 19, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now the end of verse 18 references how Christ was, was dead in the flesh, but then he was alive in the spirit, right? We know that Christ went into the grave, his body was dead in the grave, but his, his spirit, his deity part of himself was still alive and active. His flesh, his humanness was dead, but his, his spirit, his deity was alive in the spirit. And he had a message that he was proclaiming in that spirit for those three days. He had a work to do. It says that Jesus, in verse 19, went and made a proclamation during that time. In spite of his death, he triumphed and he was victorious. Now, when it says proclamation, that doesn't mean he's preaching the gospel or giving an invitation. That's a different Greek word. But this Greek word usually is describing an announcement or a proclamation you make to a group of people, not necessarily a gospel invitation. But where did Jesus go and to whom did he make that proclamation to? There are a couple of views on these verses, verse 19, 20, and 21. One view is that when it says the Spirit of Christ was in Noah there in the days of Noah in verse 20, some people say, well, Noah was there building his ark and Christ's Spirit was in him. And as Noah did good deeds or talked about God, it was like Jesus was in him proclaiming God's word. That's one view. The other view is that Christ was in Hades in Sheol, proclaiming his victory over death. That's the view I take, that he's sharing his victory with those spirits that were in Haiti, saying, I've conquered death, the grave couldn't hold me. 
Now that interpretation that I take is based on Luke chapter 16 verses 19 to 31 which is about the rich man and the poor man Lazarus. If you're familiar with that story we looked at over the summer where they each go, they each die, but they go to a separate part of Hades, separate part of Sheol. And using that along with Jesus' statement to the thief on the cross saying today you'll be with me in paradise along with Combining what Peter says in Acts 2 that the grave that Sheol that Hades couldn't hold Jesus Suggesting he went there temporarily in Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul describes how Jesus Descended to the lowest parts of the earth Those verses all combining make it seem like Jesus during his three days in the grave He went and he proclaimed his victory Over others that were there in Hades awaiting judgment So that's the message of Jesus, his proclamation. And then we, we read about the audience in the last half of verse 19 and 20. It says, Jesus went and made a proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, verses 19, 20, and 21 are some of the most difficult verses in the New Testament for translators to translate from Greek into English, for us to interpret what Peter's talking about, as well as for us to apply. And there are two views about this audience. Who was Jesus proclaiming his victory to? One is that they are fallen angels or demons that are in Hades in a special holding place. That's probably the most popular view where people read Genesis chapter 6 where it describes how there were, how do we say it? They're called the sons of God, but most people would say those sons of God in chapter 6 are fallen angels. And those fallen angels cohabitate with women and they create offspring that was causing all kinds of havoc one of the reasons God decided to wipe out the human race except for Noah and his seven family members. That's the view there. That Jesus goes and he, he proclaims victory over these fallen angels and these demons that were killed and wiped away during the flood. And during that period of time, they were put into a special holding place in the underworld, awaiting release. In the book of Revelation, we learn that this group of Demons will be released on the earth in the book of Revelation. That's one view, probably the most common view. Another view is that the spirits, that these spirits are the spirits of lost, the spirits of lost people, the spirits of unbelievers and non-repentant people that are there in Hades awaiting the great white throne judgment. And that's the view that I take based on those other passages of scripture I've referenced that Christ during his three days in the grave while his body was in the grave his spirit went and proclaimed his victory over all of the unrepentant spirits that had an opportunity to place their faith in Jesus but didn't so Jesus as part of his three days in the grave went to Sheol to Hades he got the righteous Old Testament Saints sent them to heaven, and while there, he proclaimed victory over the non-believing souls and spirits that were there. 
See, we proclaim victory over those who insult, ridicule, and cause us suffering, just like Christ did. I believe that, that we can proclaim victory over those who insult us and ridicule us or cause us suffering. And I think Noah is mentioned in this passage as an example. Right? He's an example of someone that was called by God, that was a man of faith, that had a unique ministry in a very difficult period of time in history. He was godly and outstanding among his generation, but he kept doing God's will even with the ridicule he probably received, right? Building that big ark and everybody looking at him, what are you doing, you silly, goofy man? But he kept doing it. He received insults and ridicule, but he still stayed obedient to God. And during Christ's time in the grave, he went and he proclaimed victory over those same spirits, those same souls that accused and made fun of and ridiculed Noah. And we too preach to those who insult us and ridicule us. When we're made fun of or we're caused to be suffering by others, we proclaim our faith, faith in Jesus in the face of the suffering they cause us. You might do that to me, but I still love God and I won't change. Even though you harmed me, I still love you just like Christ loved you. Okay? Now we transition from verses 18 through 20. They describe Christ's death and what he did during that death. Then in verse 21, it describes what Christ accomplished in his resurrection. Verse 21 reads, Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're not out of the woods of these difficult verses to interpret still. So hang in there with me. I said 1920 and I said 21. This is the last one. 18 and 22 are pretty, pretty straightforward. Now, when Peter writes corresponding to that in my translation, verse 21, it refers to how Noah and those seven other persons were brought safely through the flood. Just as the ark was a way that God saved them, we too experience a way that God saves us. But not with water, but with a spiritual resurrection. Okay, so let's clarify. The ark did not literally save Noah. We know that, right? God miraculously helped Noah build this huge boat with these, you know, some people say there wasn't tar at that time and all these things. That's not the point of the story. The ark is not the point of the story. The point of the story is that God miraculously saved Noah. Same thing with Daniel and his three friends when they get taken to Babylon. The point isn't that we're all supposed to eat fruits and vegetables and we're supposed to look strong. It's actually the opposite. They should have looked weaker, but God strengthened them. And God made them healthy, not what they ate. So the ark didn't save Noah. God did. And water does not literally save us. God does. When we hear baptism by water, we need to remember that baptism by water, as Peter is describing here, is an outward symbol of that inward change that's already happened in our lives. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 
Paul describes that spiritual baptism. He says, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. And then Paul elaborates on that even more in Romans 6, starting in verse 3. He says, do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus and have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been baptized and buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. See, water baptism does not save us, but water baptism is a copy or a picture of the salvation that we have experienced when we place our faith in Jesus. It's a symbol of our spiritual union with him where we go down under the water just as Christ went into the grave and we come back up and are resurrected to new life. See, baptism follows faith as we practice, right? Baptism follows faith. Baptism is not faith. Just as the ark was the instrument that God used to deliver Noah, the ark was not Noah's faith. Noah had faith in God, and God used the ark to save him. Similar, it's our faith that we have, and then we experience that water baptism. And how do we know this? Well, Peter kind of tells us that. He says, baptism now saves you, and then it has an M dash in my translation, kind of showing a, a break of thought, almost like a comment on what he said. He says, not the removal of dirt from flesh, but an appeal to God for good conscience. So that's Peter's little signpost here. This baptism I'm talking about isn't that water baptism that washes away all your dirt, but instead it's the spiritual baptism. And as we read here about Christ sustaining us and baptizing us spiritually in verse 21, and, and Noah is that example, it teaches us that we prepare for suffering knowing God will sustain us through that suffering that he allows us to go through. Paul David Tripp, who's a, a pastor based in Pennsylvania, says, Suffering powerfully highlights what has always been true. We were not created for independent living. Suffering exposes our weaknesses, our blindness, our lack of control. Suffering preaches that our lives are a community project. Suffering reminds us that God's grace doesn't work to propel our independence, but to deepen our vertical and horizontal dependence. The strong, independent, self-made person is a delusion. Everyone needs help and assistance. Everyone is learned at the feet of someone else. Everyone is strengthened by others. To fight community, to quest for self-sufficiency, is not only a denial of your spiritual need, it's a denial of your humanity. Suffering is a messenger telling us that to be human is to be dependent. And that dependence is on God. 
Just as Noah and those seven others were kept safe by God through the ark, just as Jesus was brought back from the dead by God the Father, we too need to remember that God will sustain us and protect us and help us endure the suffering that he allows us to go through. And that's specifically because we have already been resurrected back to eternal life. That spiritual baptism is what takes us through that suffering. So as Peter has been describing what Christ did in his death, and Peter describes what Jesus' resurrection accomplishes in our own lives, lastly, he describes what Jesus' ascension into heaven means. Specifically, Christ's summit to heaven in verse 22. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him? This verse summarizes for us what we know from reading in the book of Acts, that Jesus, after he died, spent three days in the grave, he came back to life and resurrected, he spent 40 days on the earth, and then he ascended into heaven. Recorded in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And that's where Jesus sits at the right hand of God. And I think that's Peter's illustration here from baptism and everything he said. Just as Jesus suffered unjustly, Jesus still had a future hope of glory. And if Jesus did that, if Jesus had that future hope of glory and restoration and vindication, we should have that same hope as well that we will experience ultimate vindication from our suffering, just like Christ. Christ suffered unjustly and wrongfully, but he still had that future hope of deliverance. We too suffer wrongly, but we have a future hope and deliverance from suffering. Stephen Lawson again says, Jesus Christ was not a victim, he was victor. When Christ died on the cross, he cried out, It is finished, not I am finished. The tomb was nothing more than a motel room for a man in transit. And that suffering that we experience in our lives is just simply a motel room for us as we are in transit to be with God and sit with God in heaven. Pastor Warren Wearsby says, Christians do not fight for victory. Christians fight from victory. And Paul tells us about that victory we experience in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verses 4 through 6. He says, God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You might be encountering a difficult situation here on earth, but you're sitting with Jesus because you put your faith in him, because you have trusted in him for your salvation. And you can expect that same ultimate vindication from your suffering, just like Jesus experienced. I told you I wanted to return to Karen's story at the end of our time together. And she experienced ultimate vindication in her situation Nine months of enduring legal battles and trying to get to court to get her three kids back. They, they set up there in the courtroom, and there's no jury for this type of situation. There's just a judge. And so the prosecuting attorney from the county, from Child Protective Services, 
they share their arguments against Karen and her husband. And Karen was surprised that after the prosecuting attorney was done, the judge said, I don't need to hear the defense's side. And he dismisses the case and he smacks his gavel and says, you can have your three kids back. That the Child Protective Services case was so weak, the judge didn't even want to hear the defense's side. Because what happened, they learned, is that Karen, after she went to that doctor's visit and had the x-ray and went home, another doctor in another department saw that x-ray sitting there, saw the little crack in the baby's head, called CPS and reported her for abuse, having never met her, having never seen her son, or talked to her or done anything. She was a good, loving mom that just had to endure a bad situation. She experienced ultimate vindication from her suffering. Eventually, she got her kids back. Her criminal you know, history was wiped away and put to the side, and she was able to return to work. For her, she experienced that ultimate vindication from her suffering while she was on earth. Some of us get to experience that vindication while we're on earth. Some of us are going to have to wait to get out of that suffering until we are in heaven with Jesus and with other saints. That's why we need to prepare for suffering, knowing God will sustain us through it, that he'll sustain us through what he allows. And lastly, as we close up, that we need to proclaim our victory through our faith in Christ over the suffering we're in and to the people that are causing our suffering. Let's pray. God, thanks for these strong words from, from Peter that are nestled in this little book that maybe we don't always read because we don't always know what to do with them. Thank you for your word that speaks to us, to the situations we're in. As people that love you and serve you, some of us, I know we have experienced suffering that was not caused by anything we did or any mistakes we've made, but you tell us how to get through it. You tell us we have a model to follow, that, that there's someone that's, that's already walked through suffering and that we simply follow his footsteps during those dark and cold days. I pray for our church as we're going through that, that you would help us. I pray for the people that we encounter and talk to that, that aren't with us here in person, but that are going through dark days. Those people need your word and they need your love. I pray that you would help us as we're a church trying to, to show them love and kindness and caring, but also to, to teach them and disciple them in what it means to endure suffering. I pray that you would help us as a church to do that this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll invite you to stand for the benediction. Sometimes people ask me if they haven't been to our church, how long do you preach for? And I say, well, it depends on the passage. Some passages I need about 25 minutes. Some I need about 40. Today, which one of, the, which one of those was it? The 40, right? Just kind of depends. I have a, a certain number I shoot for, but some are just harder and require a little more time. So thanks for hanging in there with me. So let us go and be light to our community. Just as we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, God, you are our light. 
Let us go and be light to others so that we may point them to the source of our light, which is Jesus. Amen.